Hello, I'm Terry Schultz and I am channeling Brussels. Getting newsmakers, movers and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. And now I'm very pleased to share with you one of the very last interviews given by NATO's Deputy Secretary General Rose Gottemuller as she wrapped up her three-year term as the first female ever in that position and a very beloved leader. Rose has been a trailblazer all her career. She tells fascinating stories about what it was like to be negotiating arms control treaties with the Soviets as the only woman in the room. I was lucky enough to first interview her many years ago when she was an expert on Russian nuclear programs at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington. She was also no less than the U.S.'s chief negotiator on the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, otherwise known as New START, the last remaining nuclear arms control treaty with Moscow. It's due to come up for renewal next year, and its future is uncertain under the Trump administration. I would have loved to talk to Rose more about that, but the intense situation in northern Syria between NATO's two largest military powers, the U.S. and Turkey, is just too urgent to talk about anything else first. I hope you stay with me all the way to the end, where she talks a bit about nuclear weapons and about her hopes a gender-balanced NATO isn't too far off. Deputy Secretary General, thank you very much for making time for this interview on your very last week, one of your last days in NATO headquarters. It's my pleasure, Terry. It's really great to see you again. You too. Um, I could imagine that it would have been a very different interview had we managed to fit it in an earlier week. But today there is no way to avoid um, this emerging crisis um, in Syria. I, I know that this is always prefaced by saying NATO is not on the ground in Syria, right. but NATO cannot ignore what is happening there. What are the concerns of the alliance at this point? The concerns of the alliance apply to everyone who is there on the ground, and they have to do with ensuring that restraint is shown, ensuring that human rights are uh, taken into account, and really ensuring we have to remember that we had this enormous success in the fight against ISIS, in the fight against Daesh, and we have to ensure that those gains in the fight against terrorism are not jeopardized. Aren't those warnings a little bit late now? There have been videos um, posted over the weekend showing what um, appear to be summary executions by the Turkish side. You have people as, as well um, informed as Brett McGurk, former U.S. envoy, saying that Turkey has now shelled U.S. positions. Are you concerned that there could be an escalation, not just of the conflict, but of a conflict between your two, NATO's two largest uh, militaries? I think that what is the most important thing to focus on now, as you know, NATO stands for the rule of law always. And the notion that there would be extrajudicial killings or anything like that, I can't confirm any of this. These are reports that have come in. But I do want to stress that as NATO stands for the rule of law, stands for these values and principles we all share, uh, the notion that uh, there are human rights abuses, this is of great concern to NATO. We're going to continue to press these messages. That's what NATO can do because, as you said, we're not on the ground in Syria. Uh, Secretary General was just in Ankara. I watched his press conference with uh, Foreign Minister Shavusholu, and after that, he was headed to a meeting with President Erdogan. And the Foreign Minister said, uh, standing there next to uh, the Secretary General, that he expected NATO to show more solidarity, that the governments who are also in the EU criticizing Turkey um, are uh, exercising hypocrisy 
by criticizing what Turkey, what an ally feels like it needs to do. He said, we need to see indivisibility. We need more solidarity. As the Secretary General always emphasizes, Turkey has legitimate security concerns. They are housing now thousands, millions even, of refugees. They have suffered horrendous terrorist attacks. We recognize uh, those burdens that have been on Turkey's shoulders. But at the same time, and again, we will continue to emphasize, Turkey, as others in the region, is going to need to focus on uh, proportionality. It's going to need to focus on avoiding human rights abuses. It's very, very important that all there show restraint. I know that there is not a mechanism for kicking Turkey out of NATO. Is it disturbing that there are even these, these conversations taking place among intelligent people on social media? Well, it, for decades and well before social media emerged, NATO has had differences among allies, including some very grave crises over the years. I remember even the Iraq war in 2003 called forth extraordinary differences and shouting matches in the North Atlantic Council. So there are differences among the allies. We have to work through them. This is an, uh, an alliance that operates by consensus. So, But uh, I think what is really uh, an important message in this case is that Turkey remains a valued ally. They do uh, stand front and center in our important missions in uh, Afghanistan, our resolute support mission, our training mission in Iraq. Uh, they are always there when we need them in, in important operations. So they are a valued ally, but we will continue to express these concerns and press these messages as the Secretary General did last week in Istanbul with the President and uh, with the Foreign Minister. But if Turkey is calling for solidarity, can, can NATO show solidarity both to Turkey and to the United States if Turkey is if it's confirmed that Turkey has shelled U.S. positions knowing that the that U.S. Uh, personnel were there? I can't confirm any of these stories. But uh, about Terry. the solidarity question, but, can but you stand with stress, Turkey? I will stress that NATO already shows solidarity with Turkey. We've spent $5 billion over the years in building up our uh, NATO facilities in Turkey, air bases, naval ports, radar sites. We continue to defend Turkish airspace with flights by NATO AWACS planes to provide for situational awareness in the area. NATO is standing with Turkey as uh, we do in our common defense. I don't think that's in question, but is it possible to stand with the U.S. if, if Turkey is shelling U.S. positions? Do you have to pick a side? Again, I cannot confirm that Turkey is, is shelling U.S. positions, so okay. I can't even comment on that. Okay. Um, moving on, um, you said, <clears throat> as NATO has continued to say, that that um, Turkey must ensure that the gains against Daesh, um, certainly all everyone here is a member of the global coalition, need to be preserved. But again, we know that hundreds of, of people have escaped from, from some of these uh, areas that were held by the Kurds. Is it possible that you can ensure that, that you know, the, the fight against Daesh remains where it was? And specifically, you were named as the, you were coordinating counterterrorism policy here um, as far as NATO does that. So uh, this is certainly something that you've been tracking. Again, I want to underscore that I cannot confirm that hundreds of people have escaped from, from these camps. What I do know is that the international community has been looking very, very hard at how to deal with the issue of foreign fighters and their families, how to try them, what 
uh, will be the proper judicial process for dealing with them. NATO supports that. We support the international community's efforts to deal with this problem. And it's high time that there be some priority attention given to resolving this problem. So we do emphasize that. And then again, on the ground, we're saying we need to pay attention to um, avoiding humanitarian problems, avoiding humanitarian uh, tragedy further in this effort, and that means avoiding things like extra extrajudicial uh, executions and, and that type of thing. And then finally, I would just urge that we continue to do everything we can in real terms to uh, avoid uh, uh, jeopardizing the gains from our fight against Daesh. Has there been any discussion here um, at, at this point about possibly moving um, NATO uh, resources, I mean, there's the Inserlik Air Base, I know that that's mostly populated by the United States, but has there been any discussion about whether these uh, facilities would be in danger under the certain circumstances? No. Nothing like that? Okay, so there's no talk about, about moving NATO assets or U.S. assets uh, used by NATO outside, out of Turkey. I can't speak for the United States of America, but I can speak for NATO. <laughs> I'm sure you don't mind not having that extra job at this point. Um, but moving ahead, do you feel that counterterrorism is in a solid place? This is something that has become really, well, if you cover NATO for 13 years like me, it seems relatively recent that, that this has been a priority and that was something that was tasked to you. Do you feel like you leave it in a better place despite what's happening I think, now? I think it is in a better place than it was uh, when I arrived. And it's not just because of my arrival three years ago, but it is the fact that NATO as a whole has been focusing on the fight against terrorism now. There are, of course, our big operations, the train advise assist uh, operation in Afghanistan. That is really a big counterterrorism effort. Same with helping now uh, in Iraq uh, to train there. These are efforts that will, I think, pay big dividends in the fight against terrorism going forward. But there's now, I would think, a, a profound effort inside NATO to focus in a fine-grained way at some of the uh, technical problems, for example, that are out there. Terrorists are taking off-the-shelf technology like drones and weaponizing them, and NATO's looking at some very solid ways to, to counter those kinds of, of uh, off-the-shelf technological threats. Also working on uh, issues such as biometrics, which help in the, in the search for evidence in these cases, which is very important for all NATO allies. So I think we're doing a lot more, and we're doing it in a smart way, because we have to look for where we add value as NATO. Everybody's fighting against terrorism. That's a good thing. Where does NATO add value? That's a, wor a worthy question. And where does technology add value? And, and where does it hurt? I know that's something that we talk about a lot. Um, let's try to do a, a, go through a bit of a, a tour de table of the other issues. Um, you mentioned Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, are you more or less optimistic as, as you leave now that this longest war in NATO and U.S. history is going to come to a, a successful end if we're talking about well, I won't say democracy, but if we're talking about a better life for Afghans after um, NATO efforts there. Well, clearly, as we look at the situation on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, the situation is riper for peace than it has been in in decades, and that I think is a good uh, a good situation. There is a focus among the Afghan public on uh, on supporting a peace process. We've seen the Taliban at the table now for some months, together with Ambassador Khalil Saad. I don't know when they'll get back to the table again, but there has been significant uh, progress in in that. Uh, 
effort to move Afghanistan toward peace. As far as NATO is concerned, we feel that the, all the work that we have done over the years in our train, advise, and assist mission has uh, produced the kind of capacity and capability in the Afghan security forces, the Afghan National Army, that will underpin that peace and help to carry it forward through implementation. So Afghanistan is... Uh, you know, it's an unfinished story at this point, but I do see uh, big changes in the three years that I've been here. There was a possibility a peace deal could have been signed during before before you left, but um, unfortunately not now. Um, and um, something that I always love talking to you about, of course, is nuclear policy. Um, and again, that also is in a tumultuous time now with um, living in a post-INF world, as the Secretary General likes to call it, or doesn't like to call it, but has to call it. Mm -hmm. um, this was your this was your life for so many so many years. Um, are you worried about this new situation with no curbs on intermediate range nuclear weapons and no um, no idea what's happening next and with an uncertain future for New Start? Well, we have a pretty good idea about what's happening next from a NATO perspective. Our defense ministers have agreed to uh, look at a package of options uh, as to how NATO will prepare to deter and defend against any uh, ground-launched intermediate-range uh, threat that, that may come at us. And so a lot of work is going on now in very, I think, important pra practical ways on how we better train to confront such a threat, on how we build up our resist resilience on uh, how we defend uh, in uh, the necessity of integrated air and missile defense. Uh, and furthermore, thinking about how we just improve our uh, intelligence and warnings so we have a better idea of, of how the threat is developing. So I think there are a number of very pragmatic ways that, that NATO's uh, actively looking to to respond to this, this new challenge that's out there. But the other thing I want to stress is that NATO hasn't given up on arms control. We really think that it's important to look for ways to continue to exercise restraint uh, with regard to uh, military uh, systems that uh, you know threaten us with nuclear attack, but also threaten us with conventional attack. We are looking at ways, for example, to improve the so-called Vienna document, mm -hmm. which these are arms, uh, not arms control, strictly speaking, but confidence building measures. So we're continuing to take a broad look at, at how to improve the, the arms control agenda as well. Well, and to be fair, there have been talks about updating that document long before Indeed. the INF was certain to be to be lost. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and leading into that, um, what about the relationship with Russia, a country that you know well, officials you know well? And I'm sorry to go back to this for one other moment, but um, a question I forgot in the Syria, uh, Syria um, uh, uh, matter is that um, the latest is that um, President Assad's forces are now headed north. Um, backed by Russia, of course, and that Russia was also bombing, uh, bombing hospitals in Syria. Again, I don't expect you to confirm those reports, but um, it, when we talk about the relationship with Russia, which has always been uncomfortable that they are backing the Syrian regime, if they are now backing Syrian forces headed north to where a NATO ally is engaged, or more than one NATO ally is engaged, um, is this something that... that uh, is bringing the crisis to a head that, that we hadn't, uh, hadn't per perhaps anticipated? I don't think anybody, including me, can speculate on exactly where this, this crisis is headed. Uh, we can continue to emphasize 
restraint and emphasize the need to uh, preserve the gains uh, in our fight against ISIS. What I have seen from the Russians uh, so far, and they have been uh, interested actually in advancing uh, efforts to resolve this issue at the negotiating table, NATO can only welcome that. And uh, for all concerned, I think it's, uh, it's wise to consider how to get back to talking rather than fighting. And uh, the Russian relationship, um, in, a, in a larger sense, uh, hasn't been going so well in your three years. Well, you know, frankly, for NATO, and this goes way back into history, way back to the to the Harmel report in the 1960s, we've always been intent on being clear about having good uh, deterrence and defense against any threat that should come at us. Soviet Union. Now we are concerned about Russia. But we also have been very clear that we want to have uh, detente and dialogue as a second track and be focusing also on talking. So uh, to this day, that is a very, very strong commitment by the alliance, and, and we will continue to do so. We've regularly met in the NATO-Russia Council since I've been here. Organizing those meetings was not easy, I can tell you. But uh, I do think that it's been valuable to have the allies talking. Talking uh, perhaps um, regularly, but not frequently, um, with, with the Russians, and they haven't. Uh, the, the Russian mission is not headed by an ambassador here any longer, but by a DCM. Do you think that that this? Um, do you see, and you have perhaps a longer perspective than many on on this relationship? Um, do you see this ever coming back to something more um, to to a healthier balance? Well, I wouldn't assume because we meet in the NATO-Russia Council three times a year that that's not. That's the only talking that's going on. Clearly, we uh, talk with uh, our Russian counterparts all the time, uh, whether it's the charge here in uh, Brussels or, or with the people in the ministry back in Moscow. And don't forget also that we have a good military-to-military -military conversation going on now. And I think that's really valuable as well to have our top military leaders, not only Sakir, but also the chairman of the military committee, talking to General Gerasimov is, is very valuable for, again, uh, ensuring the security of this alliance. So long story short, don't assume a couple NRC meetings means that's all the talking that's going on. I can assure you it's not. It's most of it what we hear about. And how, how big a problem was the S-400? How big an irritant was the S-400 issue in the relationship? Well, as far as NATO's concerned, you know, we always stress that allies have the right to, uh, to buy the weapon systems that they see uh, as needed for their security. But at the same time, from a NATO perspective, it's all about interoperability. The S-400 is never going to be linked up to a NATO air defense system. So from our point of view, it's not a good expenditure of resources. But, uh, but we do stress and constantly stress with, uh, with uh, Turkey the, the necessity of interoperability and uh, will continue to do so. It's not a matter for us to comment on, <clears throat> on uh, how the Russians make their weapon sales. They are um, very active in that regard. And, and finally, because I only have a couple minutes left, um, you and I are both very interested in women um, taking a more active role in mm -hmm. security defense discussions. And as the first female deputy secretary general, you, of course, uh, were blazing a trail, especially being somebody so well known around the world. Uh, how do you think it looks here for women in NATO? Um, and uh, we've got a, um, a certainly a, 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 a proactive secretary general in this regard. Um, but when you walk around the halls, um, what do you think of the gender balance? What have you been able to do? 
to help that? And what would you like to see going forward? Do you think there will be some big strides coming soon? I'm really heartened when I see the young talent coming up in the organization, and not only men, but uh, also women. And that's where I think the big gains are going to come on gender balance in NATO, the fact that we have uh, people coming in as young interns, balance, you know, pretty well 50-50. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah. And uh, a lot of them then, uh, after they've had their internship, are able to come into NATO through various doors and they begin to work their way up. I can see them coming into the middle management now of NATO. So I think this alliance is well set uh, to move away from, yeah, it was a guy's club. We've talked about that several times. It's a, it's a defense alliance. Naturally enough, the uniformed military have had a big influence over the years on, on what NATO has looked like. But now I see a lot of young women rising through the ranks. They are really talented people. And uh, so I do think that increasingly we'll see them rising from the middle ranks to the upper ranks uh, of leadership. We got a ways to go, however. I'm a little sorry uh, that the next Deputy Secretary General uh, will not be a woman, but- uh, I'm a lot sorry. But the, uh, the candidate coming in, he's no longer the candidate, he's the designee, uh, is a very experienced and uh, well-known Romanian politician and former Foreign Minister Mircea Jeoana. He's gonna do a fantastic job. And so I'm thinking ahead. I'm thinking ahead, maybe the next secretary general should be a woman. That's right. Why aim at, why aim at the second spot? But, I mean, to be, to be honest, the way I feel is that, you know, what, once we get there, it won't matter if it's a man, a man or a woman, so we won't need to be have, having these conversations. Um, as you head back to the United States, and this is um, between two Americans here, it's not the same U.S. you left. Things are um, more divided, people are polarized, and you're headed into a next U.S. election. Um, you'll go back to being a private citizen. And you're a mom. I've even met one of your sons. Um, what are your thoughts headed back to, headed back into, um, it's headed back home? It's always nice to go home, Terry. I've loved my three years in, in Brussels. It's been great to be here, but America is my country. That's where I grew up. That's where I was born, and that's where my family is. So I love going home always. And uh, yeah, we're gonna have a difficult political year ahead of us. There'll be many debates and discussions, but I do feel that that's the essence of what America's about. It's about debate, discussion, tough fights, and uh, a sound electoral process. So if I have a chance to work for a sound electoral process, I'll do what I can uh, to make sure that, that our uh, election is free and fair. Otherwise, uh, I'll be uh, back to my think tank role. I'm going to Stanford and I'll uh, have a fellowship there, which I'm really looking forward to. Will we be hearing for you, from you on the ticking of the nuclear clock? One of my favorite interviews with you here was when we talked about that. Not favorite because it was ticking quickly, but because you cared so much. No doubt. That's departing NATO Deputy Secretary General Rose Gottemuller, now winging it to Stanford to become a lecturer there. And as you heard, to be keeping her very practiced eye on the doomsday clock. Social media has been filled with tributes to her and notes about how much she'll be missed. Maybe she'll be back when the top job opens up with Jens Stoltenberg's departure in 2022. That's all for this Channeling Brussels. Thanks to the Atlantic Council for sponsoring Channeling Brussels. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Terry Schultz. Join me next time.